Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. What's your name? What's your name? He says, I'm Robert. I said, hi, I'm Matt. And then we began, I just began to hear his story of how he ended up being the guy in the wheelchair at the light. He was living on a disability check. He had lost his legs to some health reasons. His wife had left him. He had lost his home after his wife left. And so he was living week to week on this disability check. His name was Robert. And I began to just share with him some different things that, he, that we could get him, some resources, meals, shelter. He told me he was living out of a hotel, uh, cheap motel, paying weekly uh, for that motel, and that's, that was where he wanted to be. He didn't want to go to a shelter. But again, every week I began to then build this relationship with him, connect him to case management, connect him to crisis teams, and begin to work with him to help him not be just a guy in a wheelchair at the light. But I think about that. How often do we, did, did Bob, did Robert, want to be known as the guy in the wheelchair at the light? I don't think he did. And I think just as important as the water and the food and the resources and, and all the things that were able to be put in place for him, I think that the one thing that helped him be better and to be whole again was the fact that someone else knew his name. Someone else knew his story, and someone took the time to get to know him, and as a result, other people got to know him and got to connect with him, and he began to have a little bit more wholeness emotionally, spiritually in his life. It's not just about the physical. There's something about being known and being known by others and being known by God that is so important to our identity. You know, I think about this guy in the passage this morning I wonder how people in the community referred to him. He had been there for 38 years. 
Did they say, oh, you know the crippled guy at the pool, is that how they referred to him? Is that every time they walked by him, did they just say, oh, you know that crippled guy at the pool at Bethesda? You know that guy? Because he had been there for 38 years. People knew who he was, but they had maybe had never gotten to know him, never gotten to talk to him, never known that there was a person and a story there. I actually think that's part of what drives Jesus to him. <laughs> I think that's actually what drives Jesus to him is, is that this idea that maybe nobody else had ever got to know him. No one had ever stopped and asked how he was doing. Because we hear in his explanation, no one even would come along to help him in the pool. I mean, if somebody had actually talked to him and, said, and he had said, can you help me in the pool, maybe that would have happened. But nobody for 38 years came and talked to him. Never asked him, can you help me get in the pool? What do you need? <laughs> well, I just need somebody to help me get in the pool. Because in that pool was this place of a potential healing. And I wonder how long he's, he's sitting there hoping in the pool. Sitting there hoping that he, somehow he will get in the pool. Because I, I kind of get this image. I don't know. I don't go to casinos, but I have this casino image in my mind of the person who takes their Social Security check on Friday, heads to the casino, and goes to the slot machine, and sits there and pulls that lever, putting all their money into that machine, hoping what? What are they hoping for? Hit it big, right? I get this image of this guy sitting by the pool, hoping that he's going to get healed. <laughs> playing the Russian, playing, not Russian roulette, playing the roulette wheel of the pool, you know. So. <laughs> Too many old action movies. Sorry. Um, but you know what, I'm, you, you get the point, is that there's this idea that he, he, he's kind of hoping, but you know, notice that the pool had to be stirred by an angel, and that didn't happen every day. So he's there every day hoping for that moment, and then hoping someone will help him in the pool, and he's doing this for 38 years, never being healed. I wonder if he ever thought to himself, oh, did he, you know, did he give up? Hope they ever think nobody cares about me, nobody sees me, nobody knows me. Isn't that all about his identity? <laughs> he had an identity crisis. And I think he actually may have even got to the point after 38 years, I'm assuming, I'm speculating, that he actually got to the point where he had just given up hope. But this was just what you do. <laughs> this had become so routine, so much a habit, that he'd actually given up hope, he just kept showing up anyway. And here it is that Jesus goes to him. The man who, of all the people, I think about this, notice there's a crowd here at the pool. Notice there are many people who need to be healed at this pool gathered. And Jesus, the one who has the ability, the power, the authority to heal, goes simply to one person. You know, we, I, I want Jesus to go to everybody. I want Jesus to heal everybody in the place. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, he slips in and he slips out. Nobody even knows he was there except for one person. And the person he is drawn to, the person that he goes to, is possibly the person that gave up hope. All the other people maybe had some hope, but this, was, this guy had been the long, there the longest, a long time, it says. And is it something about him losing hope that, that drives Jesus to him? I don't know. But I would ask you this question this morning. Have you lost hope in some area of your life? 
Have you been hoping for something maybe for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 38 years? But I want you to know that Jesus (laughs) sees it. Jesus recognizes it. Jesus knows it. And maybe it's actually when we lose hope that Jesus shows up. (laughs) Could be. Could be. But notice that Jesus just doesn't walk over to him and say, put a hand on him and say, you're well. He asked him a question. He wanted, I think Jesus was trying to reignite some hope in him. Because he asked the question, do you want to get well? Like, I want you to answer this question. I want you to hope again, but not in this pool, in what I can offer you. He had been sitting beside this pool, hoping for 38 years, and Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to get well? I think about that question, and if we were to ask ourselves that question today, do we want to get well? Which another way to translate that word well is whole. You could actually translate it, do you want to get whole again? And I think a lot of us can understand that question, can't we? That we want to be whole. And can Jesus make us whole? Is is our true identity actually found in following Jesus, the one who can make us whole? I think the answer is yes. But I think about what are some of the pools that we sit beside that we're hoping in that will never give us that wholeness. That, that we're still waiting for the water. We keep investing in our time and our energy alongside those pools, hoping if we sit there long enough that somehow we'll be made whole. Somehow we'll be miraculously made whole and healed, whatever it is that we need healing for, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. I think some, here are some of the pools I thought of, and you may, have, you may think of others. You may have your own. If you have your own, uh, keep, keep reflecting on those. But here are some things that I came up. One was the pool of materialism. I think a lot of times we turn to material things and material items to give us significance. We sit by the pool of materialism and we think, well, if I just had a little bit more, if I just had a little bit more stuff, or if I had a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, then I would be well. I would be whole. That, that we think that material goods or materialism, and maybe it's not just the possession of them, but what they signify to us that will make us whole again. And because I think part of that is we also want to project an identity of success. So if I want to project an identity of success, I want to wear certain brands or drive certain brand cars, or I want to be identified with these particular brands. Like since I moved to Seattle, I have this this desire to buy Chacos. Is anybody right? I'm really more of a Tiva guy, I got to be honest. But I, but I see everybody wearing chakas, and I think, oh, I want to be a part of the in crowd, right? So counter that with the other day, I, I, was, in a, I was out, and uh, I saw a young, young woman wearing uh, Vans shoes. Does anybody know the brand Vans shoes? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. All right, just making sure. So she was wearing checkerboard Vans, that means they had a black and white checkerboard pattern on the vans, and she's wearing them. And I look over at her, and I had this instant desire just to walk up to her and said, you know, as an as a older guy, and look at her and go, you know, I had those exact same shoes when I was in sixth grade. 
exact same shoes in sixth grade, me. I just wanted to see what kind of reaction I would get, right? My wife, you know, held me back, I think, at that moment. She said, no, you're not doing that. But I think about that, you know, you, we, we buy into these brands, and really, I wanted to say to her, I, I create, my generation created that brand. I was one of the first skateboarders. I had a skateboarder. I had Vans. I had long hair. I was a skater dude in the sixth grade. That was me running into everybody. So I, that's what I think. I think about that, but I think about, you know, Uggs and certain brands of cars or certain brands of clothing that we, that we buy into that we think will create what? Success or significance or identity, right? It becomes a part of our identity. Our materialism becomes a part of our identity. But it's a pool that we sit beside that will never satisfy, that will never heal, that will never make us whole. So maybe that's a pool we need to let go of, walk away from, get up from. The other one I thought about is the pool of exaltation. <laughs> I, I like to be a, recognized. Do you? I think we all at certain level need to be known, but I think there's another part of us that wants our ego to be fed, to be recognized, to get credit for stuff, to get awards, to get, to get accolades, to get merit, to, to build a, a, a wall of certificates, of awards, of success, to project this image that we are successful. We want to project an identity of success. And so we want these things to symbolize that, and that becomes a part of our identity. Here's the part that, though, that happens, is that as you go through life, those run out. Those go away. <laughs> and if you become dependent upon that pool of exaltation, of recognition, of, of exaltation of my ego or your ego, we begin to, when that goes away, what happens to our wholeness? What happens to our identity when that goes away? It won't satisfy. <laughs> Notice that when Jesus healed this man at the pool, no one recognized it. Did you notice that? He slips in and he slips out. There's a crowd there. What a great opportunity for Jesus to say, look what I did. And he doesn't. He just slips out. The guy doesn't even know his name. When he goes and reports to the, to the Jewish leaders, when he shows himself to the Jewish leaders, because he would have had to go to, show, to the Jewish leaders and say, here, I'm whole, I'm healed, I can be a part of society again. He says, I don't even know the guy's name. No recognition. What a great opportunity for Jesus to be recognized. And he doesn't take it. Because that's not what he's about. That's not the purpose of his coming. Then the other pool I thought about was the pool of self-sufficiency. <laughs> you know, when we get to say, I did it all by myself. <laughs> I did it all by myself. I, look, Mom, no hands. And there is a certain level where we do want to be productive and we want to learn. I, I love learning new things and taking on new projects and, and learning things on my own. But I always find that when I learn together with others, I take everything to another level. That I don't believe in this idea of a self-made man or self-made woman in our society, but that's what our, we're taught. And that we buy into that as an identity that we're to pursue, right? But really, there, that, that's not true, especially if you believe in God. You realize that you're created by God. 
and then created, as we talked about last, night, last week, in the Imago Dei, that God created us with this spiritual DNA that we're to live out in our lives. You know, and if you think about this, you know, there's a, a whole, there's an $11 billion industry called the self-help industry. It's going to grow to $13.6 billion by the year 2022. And this is this, this whole idea that I can do it myself. We even talk about DIY, <laughs> right? I think when it comes to our own identity and our own spirituality and our own faith and our own understanding of our whole self, we, what, we, I think we DIY a lot of it, right? You know, you got a whole section, of self-help section. You know, you heard about the guy who walked into the bookstore and said, hey, can you, can you point out the self-help section to me? And the, the woman behind the, the counter said, yeah, yes, I could, but that would defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? Here's a book. This is a Christian book in the self-help section from back probably when I was riding skateboards. But here, I love the title. It's, Anybody Can Be Cool, But Awesome Takes Practice. Right? That's a Christian book, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Is G- does Jesus want us to be cool and awesome? Is that really our identity? Or is it more than that? I would say to you, if you have come here today and you don't feel that cool or you don't feel that awesome, here's a word from God for you this morning. God already thinks you're awesome. God already loves you and cares about you and values you because you are God's creation. That's your identity. Live that identity. Because you, that, uh, the whole idea to be cool and awesome is to prove to other people that we're worthy, right? God already thinks you're worthy. Notice the man's response, though, to the question is this. I don't know what pool you're sitting beside. Maybe you thought of some mural pools. But notice the man's response is this. Not, yes, I want to get well. Not, yes, I want to get whole. He then begins to explain to Jesus why he's not becoming healed whole well. He doesn't say, yes, I'd like to be healed. He says, here are the reasons I'm not being healed. Isn't that so human of us? God comes and offers us, Jesus offers healing, offers wellness, offers wholeness, and we say, well, let me explain to you, Jesus, God, how the reasons I'm not being made whole in my life, and if this were to happen, or that were to happen, or if this could line up, or that could line up, if I were to get that award, or if I had more money, or if I had, uh, you know, uh, uh, more self-help books, then I could be whole. Because What does that tell us? That we're still sitting beside the pools that won't really heal us. Notice then that Jesus says what? He commands the man, actually. He said, he orders him, exclamation point, get up. Get up. I reminded, if, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Lazarus when he's dead for four days in the tomb and Jesus comes to the tomb and, he, and there's the same command there at the tomb where Jesus says to a dead body, dead Lazarus, he says, come out. Saying the same thing to the man here, get up. And then he asks him to do something that he probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> Pick up your mat, which was a no-no on the Sabbath. And then he says, and walk. Now, now the added twist here is this picking up of the mat. Because the, the Jewish leaders had already determined that no one's to work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. I don't know what you're doing today, but 
not supposed to do any work. I guess you're not supposed to make your bed. All the, all the young people who don't make their beds are like, yeah, the pastor Madison. But we'll think about it. So on the Sabbath, the, what they had come up with, all these different, they had to make a decision about what's work on the Sabbath and what's not work, and that they had determined that picking up your mat or carrying your mat because you had to actually had to lift it up and carry it was considered work. And so the moment he takes up his mat and lifts it up and carries it, as he walks away healed, he's actually breaking Sabbath law. I don't know why Jesus asked him to do this, <laughs> but I think part of it is, is that there's, a, there's an act of obedience here. There's an act of obeying Christ, listening to Jesus, that maybe even Jesus asks, us, asks him to do something that isn't following the religious law of the day. And so he has to say to him, you know, you're more important and your healing is more important and your wholeness is more important than the, this law. And what I learned from Jesus in this moment and from the reflecting in the Jewish leaders, because notice that when the guy comes to them, the, the, the Jewish leaders aren't like, you're healed. You're the guy at the pool, right? You're that crippled guy at the pool, and now you walked in, like, I, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, that's awesome, right? You're healed. I've seen you down there for 38 years, and, but that's not their reaction, <laughs> What's their reaction? You broke the law. You did wrong. Who told you to do this? Judgment for healing, for wholeness. They want to reverse what Jesus had just done because the law for breaking the Sabbath was what? If you know your Old Testament, stoning. And what do they do? Actually, the next verse after this passage says they, that's when they began to look for a way to kill Jesus. Because the, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath law was capital punishment, death, stoning. I, I, I think it's amazing that they got, and I don't think these are, I, I would say that the Jewish leaders, I don't think they're bad people. I think they're trying to, they think this is the way they honor God, Right? And, and But Jesus is saying to them, or Jesus is saying to the man, your wholeness, you as a person, you're valid, you're worth. You're not an invalid person, invalid. You're a valid person. You have worth. You have significance. You are healed. You are whole. And let's not worry about the law. We want to worry about you as a person, your wholeness, your humanity, your dignity, who you are as a person. Because that is who God wants you to be. Yet the world can't always see that. Now, we had, the man had to shift, though. He had to make a decision to move from sitting by a pool to following Jesus. That was the decision he needed to make in the healing. That at some point, you and I have to decide, are we going to continue to sit by these pools to get whole, or are we going to follow Jesus and listen to Jesus to get whole? That's really the decision he had to make in that moment, and, and that was part of his healing, and that was part of his wholeness, and that was part of his wellness. So my question to you is, where is God asking you, say, not asking you, saying to you, commanding you to get up? 
Where is God saying to you today, this week, last week, get up. Get up. Stop sitting here by this pool and get up and walk in the way of Christ. Where is God asking, commanding? I'm not, I keep saying asking. It's really a command of obedience, of listening, to get up. Where is God asking us to do that? You know, my wife's brother uh, is, is deaf. And so we've, I'm hearing a lot of his story, his secondhand story, but he was a part of this uh, uh, fam- a part of family, and he was born deaf, and so he grew up in a deaf, uh, cu- uh, going to deaf uh, community, part of a deaf community. He actually works at uh, the Maryland School for the Deaf, and so through him, I've gotten to learn a lot about the deaf community. Did you? Are you aware that the deaf community is one of the m- biggest, uh, not the biggest, but one of the most unreached people groups in the world? We always think they're out there somewhere, right? We think that the that's out in the mission field, but it's, they're right here in America, uh, this group of people. And the reason for that is because, and my, brother my brother-in-law experienced this, is that when you're deaf, people put a label on you and assume things about you. And some of the assumptions that people make about deaf people are they're stupid because they don't talk with a clear voice or they can't hear or they can't read, you know, they can't always understand. So they so people think they're stupid or ignorant or unintelligent. And my brother-in-law has been called retarded, even though he's deaf. <laughs> so it's not a mental thing. It's a, it's a communication thing. But people misunderstand that and mislabel that. And so this has actually created uh, what I would call, this is part of the creation of deaf culture. And because uh, hearing people have said things to deaf people, now and then deaf people have retreated into their own culture and this is me, big picture, broad brushing it, but it's much more uh, multifaceted than this. But then we start to get into, uh, so then what happens is, what happens is hurt people hurt people. Did you know that? So when I'm hurt, then I start to hurt others. And, and so I get caught up into that. And so what happens is community starts to rally around itself, and then they become, uh, they get wrapped up in their own culture and sometimes their own identity politics. And if you've ever followed anything happen at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., you see a lot of the identity politics being played out there in that community of, of a rejection of hearing and an embracing of death. And to the point where my brother-in-law has actually been shamed and blamed. We talked about shame and blame last week. He has been shamed and blamed for not being a deaf enough. For saying, they say to him, you're not deaf enough. You're not one of us because you talk to hearing people. Or be also because he married a woman who is hearing. And so from a deaf culture point of view, from he doesn't identify enough with his deafness. And so he's actually been shamed and blamed because of that. And I, as an out, uh, outsider to that culture and not understanding everything, I kind of scratch my head and I go, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? But I think that happens in lots of other cultures, right? In, in all cultures, whether you're just not enough of that. You're not enough. What was going on at the pool of Bethesda? You're not, what, was, what was the world saying to the man by the pool? You're not enough. You're invalid. You're an invalid. And Jesus says, you are enough. 
you do matter, right? And so this is going on, and all this is happening. I'm getting somewhere with this give this backstory. There, there's actually some identity politics around whether or not to get cochlear implants to help you because you're not deaf enough if you get a cochlear implant. So all these things are going on. So my brother-in-law goes to a, a, a revival service. He's a Christian. And he goes to a revival service, and the, the evangelist at the revival service is, is offering healing to anybody there. And here sits, and if you've ever if you ever go anywhere with my brother-in-law, he, he stands out like a sore thumb because if he were here today, he'd be sitting right here in the front row. His wife would be sitting next to him. Everybody in the room would be going, what's going on up there with the woman with her hands? You know, because it's very obvious there's a deaf person in the room. So this evangelist looks over and sees my brother-in-law in the room and his wife signing to him and translating to him. And so the evangelist walks over to my brother-in-law and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? Now, my brother, I don't know how many times my brother-in-law has prayed to be healed. I know his mom and his dad have prayed for years that there'd be some healing to his deafness. There's been a lot of unanswered prayers over multiple years. And here, this moment, this evangelist comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? You know what he said? No. He said, no, I don't want to be healed. And the evangelist looked at him and said, what? Say that again? Sign that again? Right? No. Why? He said, because if you heal me, I can't share the gospel with my community. If you heal me of my deafness, God cannot use me within the deaf community to share the gospel with them. Because I'm deaf, they will listen to me. And if I'm healed, they won't listen to me anymore. Now you understand why I told you the backstory. But what did Judd, that's his name, Judd, do there? He said, I'm a whole person already. I'm a whole person already because of who? Jesus. Not that Jesus healed him physically, but that Jesus made sense of his life. (laughs) Jesus is the one who helped make him whole, and that he knew as he followed Jesus that this was part of his wholeness. See, he didn't need to be physically healed to be whole. Because God's in the redemptive business of taking our broken identities, of taking those labels that say to us, you're not enough, and says, in my eyes, you're whole. In my kingdom, you're whole. In my world, you're whole. And if you'll follow me, you'll discover that wholeness. Amen? Let's pray.